Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for July 31st, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good show tonight. Good to have you on. Um, we're going to have as our guest for multiple times now up from Canada north of the border, Evan Scrimshaw, and he is somebody that probably knows more about more different nations' political situations um, than anybody I know. And Evan's going to talk to us about not only politics, but he's also released a new book, Salvation and Storm. I believe it's autobiographical. We're going to ask him about that book. Then we're also going to touch on a little um, United Kingdom politics with their prime minister situation. And then we're going to talk to him about a good number of U.S. races, um, as always. So we're looking forward to that in about 20 minutes. Uh, But until then, um, something funny happened this week. Um, The Congress got things done. They actually passed legislation, moved on other legislation, moved other legislation through at least one body. Um, one of the most productive weeks in a while. I think simple are saying it's one of the most productive weeks of the Biden presidency. Um, but it did happen in the legislative branch. Um, so the credit can be shared there. And um, so we'll kind of go through some of that. And let's start off with the bill that I believe has gotten passed um, in both houses and now with the president's signature. And that is the computer chip bill. And I'm sure it has a much more uh, glorious name. But it is a bill where people said, you know, one of the biggest problems with our supply chain with electronics is so much of the, you know, so many of the uh, computer chips and some of the products needed need computer chips, and they're made overseas, and that can throw things off. But then secondly, so much of our, you know, needs of the future are going to need computer chips, and if we can't make them here, is that a national security issue? And so um, a bill got passed. Even though some Republicans objected, and we know Tim Ryan, he gave quite a speech um, talking about that very issue. But the bill did get passed in the House and the Senate now to where um, they're going to you know, do some grants to where computer chips um, can hopefully down the road, not tomorrow, but down the road, start to be made in the United States. Uh, Tim, what's your thought on this bill? Well, it's uh, pretty sweeping legislation. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Our high-tech industry has been asking for it. Uh, The domestic semiconductor industry has been, you know, uh, operating behind the eight ball when they were trying to compete with with the Chinese and and other uh, foreign manufacturers uh, because, you know their their governments either outright own their 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 industry over there, or they heavily subsidize it to the point that 
basically we were having trouble competing with them. And now, uh, thanks to this legislation, we can. And uh, uh, it's called the Chips and Science Act, by the way, so it, it, it doesn't have a real uh, formal name. Uh, and, you know, it's nice that something passes with bipartisan support, even though it took more than a year to do it. And it'll uh, it'll provide about a little over fifty billion dollars in government subsidies for you know production of semiconductors and those things are used in everything you know automobiles, high tech weapons, uh, electronic devices, video games, you know, and just about everything. And uh, so it, that's 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 a good thing to get past. That that's that that is a feather in the cap of the Democrats and the administration right there. Yes, uh, Catherine, the, the name does, is kind of straightforward, and it kind of scares <laughs> yeah. me they didn't put computer chips in it because uh, there may be a few of our representatives, without naming any names from western Colorado, northwest Georgia, that might think they're talking about potato chips. And so they might be identified <laughs> on computer chips. Um, well, I do think the name is indicative of of uh, the fact that it's more than just computer chips. It also funds some innovation projects and um, other things that should, you know, help us uh, make progress in the electronics field. So I think this is a good idea, and I'm glad that they were able to get it passed, and I think it it should be good for jobs and for um, security. So good job. Nice to see them do something. Yes, and Catherine, I'm going to come back to you on this one too. There were reports that you know Mitch McConnell had supported this legislation, but then um, the way it got um, done, it got passed, and then right after that, and a bill we'll talk about in a minute, Joe Manchin gave his support to a bill that Mitch McConnell didn't support, and then Mitch McConnell said, "Well, if I'd have known you were going to do that, I wouldn't have supported the bill." on chips and science. And I just got to thinking how disingenuous and just bizarre that is. If you support one thing and then the next thing comes down the line and you don't support it, why should that change how you felt about the previous bill that you felt was good for America? Why? You're asking why? (laughs) Yes, I mean, why? Because if you have the nation's best interest in mind, should that be the first thing? It should be, but it's not. I mean, it, 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 they they don't like to see Democrats succeed. So, I mean, yeah, and, I, and, and Kim, I think Catherine's exactly we shouldn't right. Shouldn't be surprised by and that anymore. As soon as um, Barack Obama became president, they wanted to tank him. And they talked about how they could make him a one-term president, and, and people said, you know, how terrible that was, and it certainly was. It seems like that is their modus operandi on every Democratic official, not just Barack Obama 12-plus years ago. Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, um, now let's get into that next bill, because like I said, there's four bills that we possibly could talk about. Um, and the next one would be, it originally started as the Build Back Better Bill. It was the Social Infrastructure Bill. It's had a lot of names. 
I think now it's talking about fighting inflation um, and then also um, some deficit reduction, although it's going to have some climate change elements in it. It's going to close tax loopholes. It sounds like a pretty encompassing bill. And Joe Manchin, who had been holding out on the bill, his work with Chuck Schumer, and said he now will support the bill. Now, I'm assuming, and Tim, you can clarify on this, that at one point Kirsten Sinema and all other 48 Democratic senators and Vice President Kamala Harris had said they would support this bill. So Joe Manchin was the 50th in critical vote. Am I right, right. in that, or is there possible yeah, other yeah, holdout? He was, he was, he was considered. Else? He was considered the 50th vote on this, uh, and everything that was said and and everything that I read about it, he was the 50th vote. And, and uh, you know, I know what she's done and said since then, but but she was on board. Yeah. So, so Catherine. Um, if Kirsten Sinema stays in the congregation, you know, doesn't leave, and this gets passed, how big a win uh, for the Biden administration and the Democratic Party heading into the midterm elections will this be? Oh, I think it's a big win. I think it'll help us in the fall. I think it's... But, you know, nothing's done until it's done. As much as we might think that the, that it's done, it's not done until it's done. Yeah, because it has to so, go. and I don't do think. Go ahead. Doesn't it have to go back to the house for reconciliation? I'm, I'm sure it does, but it seems like that would be a more streamlined process since it's already passed, and there's a bigger yeah. cushion at this moment in time in the house than there is in the Senate. Um. <laughs> So, you, you know, you, you you might actually get a couple of extra votes in the House this time out of the Republicans because this bill is a scale. It's got $433 billion, I think, in spending, and the original, the sum price tax were as high as $3 trillion on it. So uh, this one, by the way, has a catchier name, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. <laughs> and uh, so it, it does a lot of good stuff. And this is one of Biden's signature pieces yeah. of legislation. This one is really going to help him personally, or it should. Um, and, and and another good thing this one's going to do, this is going to give Medicare, you know, uh, more power to negotiate for prescription drugs. And that's important to a lot of people right now, including me, I might add. So. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, um, insulin's included in that, um, which has been a big yeah, campaign. Yeah, and we know, Georgia go, we know what's been going on with that price gouging with, with, with insulin and some other drugs. So you darn right it's important. Yeah, and, and so um, it, it's going to be – I think, Tim, I think you're right that it could get a few more votes because one thing to remember is a lot of those Republicans in the House have been through their primary – in which that could be used against them, and now they're to the general in which some of the elements of the bill, if they could put in campaign ads, not that it was the total name necessarily, um, then those specifics could, could help them in their reelection campaign. So that almost might also be a reason 
that they would support it. Um, so, you know, Joe Manchin comes in, and then we hear that Kirsten Cinema might possibly be out. Um, why is it so hard to get those two seemingly on the same page at the same time? Catherine, any ideas? Oh, I think, I, I mean, I think there's a bunch of different reasons. I think part of it is attention and wanting to be the, you know, the one that everyone's begging them to, begging that at. And um, I think she, I think they like to be the one that holds out for the, you know, better of the country or whatever they say. Mm. It makes them look yeah. like Maverick. And you would think. And, but, and here's the thing I would think is, in Kirsten Sinema's case, she, not only for her own political future, because Ruben Galeo is um, uh, thinking about running against Galeo, um, but also, um, you know, she seemingly supports, you know, Mark Kelly's reelection, and him looking productive it seemingly would be good for his campaign be good for her so you think she'd want to help out her senate colleague i mean us in georgia we get the idea that Raphael warnock and john ossoff work together they don't work you know against each other now in the case of joe manchin i'm sure there's things that he works that he works with um, west virginia with shelly capito but then at political times they are in opposite parties they're not as much a package deal you know david you want to add something yeah, I I understand him a lot more than I do her. I mean, he's a pretty conservative fellow to start with. I mean, especially because of his background. And uh, the second thing is, I think he has always enjoyed being the center of attention and named the key vote on everything, the most powerful Democrat uh, in the voting process. I, th- I think he really relishes uh, that attention that he's getting there. But at the end of the day, on this one in particular, he didn't want to be the one to take the whole party down. He didn't want to be targeted as that one, so he changed his mind on this once uh, they, you know, did their little negotiating thing. Now, her, I still am uncertain of her angle here. When she was in the House, she was far more progressive, far more liberal than she is. Now, she was considered in the left wing of the party. And since she has come to the Senate, she has done a 180-degree turn, and she never really comes out and says what it is exactly that she wants. And she leaves, you know, everybody, the you know, her 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 fellow senators and the media and, you know, people that study this, everybody's scratching their heads. What is her what is Kirsten Cinema's angle? I'll I'll let you take a stab at that, David. What is her angle? I have no idea. I really don't. She started out as a member of the Green Party, which we know right. sometimes the Green Party don't mind being to the left of the Democratic Party. And if Democrats lose because they get four to five percent, you know that's kind of a high number for them sometimes. But you know whatever it is, 
and the Democrat doesn't win, they say, oh, well, well, the Democrats were too far to the right anyway. But in this case, she's in the middle of the two parties, which that makes no sense. Now, if she were to talk about some major life transition that makes her feel differently, no. then I would understand <laughs> that. But I don't have any record of her saying, mm-hmm. you know, I had this epiphany no. because of X, Y, or Z. If she would do that, mm-hmm. I'd understand it a little more. I may can respect it more, depending on what it is. Catherine, have you heard of any reason for this um, shift to the right? No, I think I, I suspect that it's um, partly, you know, she doesn't want to be, you know, tied to the party as much as other Democrats because she has this, you know, previous connection with the Green Party and. But I don't. I don't know. I'm just. I'm just making some guesses. It's just. Um, it's frustrating because she is. She is a Democrat, and uh, it. It would behoove her to be more cooperative, in my opinion. Catherine, Ooh. you say you're making guesses. I think on her, all of us are. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, are. David? It, it it's not just in general. I mean, on specific issues like on this one, she. I mean, she refused to even discuss it with the media the other day, and, and her staff didn't either. Uh, what what is what is it with all the secrecy? I mean, she won't even say on a specific issue if something is bothering her what exactly that is or what exactly she wants. And I don't get it. Why all the coy stuff? What What is going on with this? This is totally out of character uh, for her based on what we know of her previously. It makes no sense at all. Yes, definitely so. Well, let's move on to another bill. Um, this one got a lot of attention because um, – John Stewart, actually, I think, had at least three or four either videos he posted or interviews he did with people, um, and it's regarding veterans' health care support for what's called burn pits, which um, just looks like a giant tire fire. Um, I know it includes more than tires, but it is just, you can imagine if you're taking, you know, things related to desert war and just burning them. Um, and things they collect, no telling what comes out of that, and it's caustic and carcinogenic. And so um, it's talking about helping pay for things related to ailments that these veterans had incurred, and um, a lot of Republicans initially supported it. I want to say 84 uh, in the Senate, and then they say the bill changed. If you watch John Stewart specifically, and I'm sure more people know more about it too, um, say it didn't change any substantive way, and they've changed their vote, and the thing won't pass. Um, Catherine, what's your thoughts on this legislation? It's pretty important to those veterans that need this service. It's important. It should be important to all of us that we're unable, that we've been unable to take care of these, these veterans and that, that this would allow us to. It's ridiculous. These Republicans are just, I don't know what they're, I don't know what what made them change their minds, uh, but it's 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 embarrassing that we aren't taking care of these people. It's just 
is um, it's really outrageous. And I and and then they're going to use their you know claim to support veterans when they run for office. It's 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 horrifying. Yes, Tim, I think you were the first one of us to bring this the attention to the rest after, you know, I guess when John Stewart's initial uh, videos, but um, give us your um, read on it. Well, you know, the bottom line is they passed this thing in June, 84 to 14, and there was some, quote, administrative language that needed to be changed in it to make it totally legal, which they did. And it changed. It did not change, though, the bill in any way. It is the same bill regardless of what they say. Now, there's two ways that that appropriations bills are passed, and you all know this is discretionary spending are mandatory. In this case, this one is mandatory, and it was set up that way. Because with discretionary spending, you can take the funds away from something and move it to something else. This one is mandatory so that the funds cannot be appropriated for anything else. And all of a sudden, the Republicans have found to their horror that there's a budgetary gimmick. Now, it's Pat Toomey that's doing all this screaming and and you know he he's been opposed to it all along and uh, so uh, all of a sudden 25 of them changed their votes and uh, it needed 60 votes and uh, that, there there we go so yeah uh, that, we'll, we'll get we'll get deeper into this a little bit later but now I want to welcome back to the Kudzu Fund for. I can't even count how many times because she's been such a frequent and wonderful guest for us uh, from Canada, Mr. Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome, Evan. Thanks for having me. I think this is time six, I think. Time six? Well, I mean, we enjoy it so much, and so that's why when we lose count, that means we really like it. So that's <laughs> no, it's a high compliment. I understand that, but, yeah, I think it's been two a year so far. Yes. Well, I think since the last time we had you, or we had so much on the docket, we didn't get to it, you have released a book, and I'm going to pass it to Catherine, who's going to ask you some questions there, and then Tim and I myself will ask you some more questions after that. So I'm going to pass it to Catherine. Hey, Evan. Thanks for being on tonight. Love coming on. Um, so you wrote a book with it. Uh... Salvation. I can't remember. Yeah, and so t- tell us about how that came about and what what uh, prompted you to write it and how long did it take and all that kind of, you know, just tell us about the, the process and what it's about. So a week after Joe Biden was sworn in, I was uh, talking with a, a close friend of mine who was like, you are not in like a good like mental state right now. And <laughs> I wasn't. It was like at that point, Canada was still in lockdown like we everything was basically shut down it was not a good time and he said to me why don't you start writing fiction why don't you like see if that's something that can help you and so that night you know we spent like two or three hours on zoom zoom that night and 
when I was done, I just sort of started thinking about it and I had an idea, the creative juices were flowing. I wrote a different story and then I sort of finished with those characters. I was like, what do we, okay, what else? And I sort of had this idea would have been sort of like spring 2021. I wrote it in about 10 weeks. Sat on it. Yeah. I, it was basically just a fun sort of distraction for me from writing columns or from doing, you know, actual stuff. And it was just a project I would write, you know, most nights before I went to sleep. And it's, uh, it's a, so it's partially a campaign drama. It's, the story of a, um, you know, talented, uh, intellectually curious, politically savvy Canadian high schooler who moves to the U.S., goes to Texas A&M for school, and it's the story of a Texas campaign of a sort of year at, in this, you know, hypothetical Texas A&M, the people he meets, the campaign he works on, uh, the protagonist is gay, like I am, that's definitely part of the part of the intrigue on at least on my in terms of me wanting to write it but it's just a sort of a very contained story of that universe and that sort of characters so i think it's i think it's good that's I, I really interesting and what a good friend you have and who told you who suggested that oh yeah a thousand percent that's it's, pretty cool it's someone who it's someone who understands me well and, and understood that, like, the, the, the sort of, like, world-building aspects of writing fiction would do very well for my mind as a distraction and as a clarifying exercise. I kind of wish someone had suggested that to me. That might have helped me during the pandemic. <laughs> but congratulations. And how's how – it's been out since December? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And how's it, how, how are sales? Oh, it's great. It's a lot more people have read it than I expected. I just, like, I wrote it for myself. Like, that's the thing about my fiction is just, like, I just wrote it. I wrote it for me. Like, I had no intention of ever publishing it. I just, like, I wrote it. I sat on it for months, and then there was the Canadian election campaign. <coughs> I was stressed one night, and I was just like, well, shit, why don't I read the read the book? Why don't I just, like, do that might be a, a suit thing? And I'm like, oh, this is actually, like, good. And so I sort of decided to decided to put it out. A lot more people than I expected bought it. You know, a lot of people who, you know, follow my Substack and, you know, follow me on Twitter, you know, bought it. And their reviews have been generally very good. So I'm quite happy with it. Well, congratulations. That's really a great story. Just the story of writing it is really interesting. So I'm going to have to pick it up. I'm going to pass it on yeah. to Tim so he can ask you some questions. But Congratulations, and uh, I hope you continue. It sounds like a, a good process. Yeah, thanks. Hey, good evening, Evan, and thank you for being on again with us. Uh, uh, my purpose tonight is to jump around the country with you and talk to you about what's going on in some of the midterm stuff. Um, you may mention on Substack uh, about the generic uh, congressional ballot uh, now being essentially tied. So if if you're thinking now, if, if that dynamic plays out till November and it stays tied, maybe the Democrats up a point or two, 
I'm thinking very limited losses for the Democrats, maybe in the neighborhood of two dozen or so. What are you thinking when you're thinking about the number of losses that the Democrats uh, might hold this thing down to now? So I've always been a relative has optimist. I've always been mm-hmm. relatively optimistic that even even in not good generic ballots, Democrats will out, will do fine in terms of holding the losses down because the thing about this House map is Republicans and Democrats too, but mostly Republicans have gerrymandered so efficiently there's not that many swing seats left. And so mm-hmm. unlike in 2010 where Republicans had all of these like we all forget this because it was 12 years ago, but like Democrats held five seats in Tennessee after the 2008 House elections. There was a low-hanging fruit for Republicans to go get, which is why they got 63 seats that year, because there mm-hmm. was stuff that they had no business holding. Democrats had no business holding. They just ended up losing. There isn't much of that left for Democrats. If you tell me it's a generic ballot, it's a tied generic ballot, I'm going to tell you Democrats are going to have 210 seats. That's a 12-seat loss, right? If it's an R1, mm-hmm. R2, they'll be in the 205 range. Like, most of their incumbents, like, you can do a granular, like, seat-by-seat analysis, which gets you to a fairly similar place. But, like, Democrats up and down the board, right? We're talking uh, Abigail Spanberger in, in Virginia 7. We're talking Angie Craig in Minnesota 2. They have cash advantage over their opponents. We've already seen one Republican, Spanberger's opponent specifically, um, cut Aiken themselves with horrific, like, truly, truly awful comments about abortion and rape, which if Republicans are going to keep doing that, just they're just going to keep tossing away seats. And you can go through it at a micro level, and as long as the generic ballot doesn't hit too bad, you're probably going to see 12 to 20 losses, I think, at the high end. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that, like, everyone's just pricing in 30, 30 hash losses because, you know, midterm. Uh, we've never had a midterm where the Supreme Court just struck down 50 years of judicial precedent and took away, like, a very key right. Like, this ain't this ain't your grandpa's midterm, guys. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, you know, that, that kind of leads me into the next part of this. One thing we always look at for, quote, historical norms is the congressional uh, generic ballot question. The second thing is the popularity numbers of the president. We know what they are right now. But I was wondering, because of the unique circumstances, especially the set of issues like, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, school violence, uh, gay marriage, you know, et cetera, is this finally a year where we should just throw historical norms out the window because of all of this? I mean, I'd be in favor of doing that anyways because uh-huh. – uh, Part of my rise to prominence was the 2019 UK election where I tossed out decades worth of historical precedent and therefore got the Tories winning all those red wall seats correct. So I think they're mostly useless anyways. In specific here, yes, because the reason Democrats lost in 2010 and 2014 was a massive disproportionate decline in 
uh, minority turnout compared to white turnout. I've used this factoid a thousand times, but the uh, share of the electorate that was white, or sorry, uh, Democratic share of the vote with white voters in Colorado and Florida actually went up between 2012 and 2014. What happened was Democratic turnout with um, blacks and Hispanics fell off a fell off a cliff and so in so doing republicans won anyways despite the fact that democrats did better with moderate whites and you see a, and and like the risk of something like that happening is i'm going to say substantially less because you are not going to see democratic you are not going to see democratic voters who do not like joe biden are not going to be nearly as uh unwilling to vote in an election where roe has just been overturned where January 6th is a big issue for Democratic voters, even if it's not one for necessarily for swing voters, it's still it's still a, a big high-profile um, turnout booster. And Democratic state organizations, particularly in, in key states, are much better at minority turnout now than they were in 2014, <coughs> Georgia. Um, so I think we're going to avoid the turnout drop. Like, the approval stuff matters if it means that Democratic supporting voters don't bother turning out. I don't see Democrats having a turnout problem because of all of the issues of, of this year. Hmm. Okay, now I want to move to a couple of individual states with you, and I want to start just south of you because I keep watching this Pennsylvania stuff. And Fetterman is just killing us in the polling, 9, 10, 11 the points, a brand-new poll. He's 11 ahead. Governor's race is a 10-point race. What in the world is going on in Pennsylvania in what should be a good Republican year? So I'll dispense with the governor's race first. Uh, Republicans nominated a literally at the Capitol on January 6th QAnon night, <laughs> and swing voters have said absolutely not. And also Republican, like the Republican Governors Association, that's also said absolutely not. And so Big Mastrado, he's a sitting duck. Josh Shapiro, I, I do not see how Shapiro loses at this point. He's up too much. He's He was at 50% in that box poll. Uh, Shapiro mm-hmm. has a huge money advantage on Mastriano. A Mastriano win at this point would be, oh, and in Pennsylvania, um, Democrats tend to do better in state races than they do in federal races see Pennsylvania Democrats winning the governorship in 2014 from an unpopular Republican incumbent while they, while they lost Maryland and Massachusetts. Um, uh-huh. Shapiro would be fine. Federman, okay. man, I, I, apparently Dr. Oz is just like the worst politician of this, of the last decade. Like he's deeply unpopular with everybody. Republican voters hate him. Uh, working class whites think he's a fraud. Pencil, like the the New Jersey stuff, seems to be having like some impact on him not being sort of like he doesn't know the state well enough to represent us. Seems to be an issue. And the problem, and the problem for Republicans is all of the like New Jersey and the like getting Stephen Van Zant to do a video for you and buying a cameo from Snooky stuff. Like, that's not, like, funny, like, TikTok, Twitter stuff. But mm-hmm. it's also, like, getting – it's also gotten Dr. Oz very much off message. So he can't hammer Democrats on inflation taxes, gas prices, because he's having to, like, try and prove that he's, like, a true Pennsylvanian. 
and the thing about politics that everyone understates is it's not just like do you do well on an issue or not it's it the party that's sort of like setting the weather right that's setting the political environment that's setting the news cycle tends to be the party that wins Mm -hmm. democrats are making this pennsylvania senate race about pennsylvania values like longevity and not about gas prices and Oz, unfortunately, every time he has to talk about, well, actually, no, I do love Pennsylvania, don't you know? You don't. You're lying. You are just straight up lying right now. And people know it. People aren't being mm. – people aren't buying this. Mm. Is Oz going to recover? <sighs> if this was – the problem – if this was like Black Masters in Arizona, maybe. Because no one knows who Masters is. So, like, you could maybe convince me that, like – it, once he gets on message, he'll be fine. Everyone knows who Dr. Oz is, and nobody likes him. It's really <laughs> hard. Like, that's the thing. Like, usually the advantage of a neophyte of a neophyte political candidate is nobody knows who they are, so you can, you can, like, change minds because no one has, like, firm opinions about you. But he's Dr. Oz. Like... I don't know what you like. I, who doesn't have a strong opinion about Dr. Oz one way or another at this point? Yeah. So, so you get that. But you also get all of the disadvantages of a neophyte political candidate, which are that they don't know what the bleep they're doing. <laughs> and the thing is, a Republican, a Republican gave a quote to, I think it was Politico, but it was some Beltway media, about how we have a path to win the Senate without Pennsylvania. That is like a oh, – that, like that is <laughs> – that is the waving the white flag of, oh, okay, well, that's gone. And I don't necessarily think it's gone, but I don't see how you make the case Dr. Oz is favorite to win this race. I don't even see how you make the case that he's particularly close to favorite to win this race right now. All right, good enough. So now I'm going, I'm going to uh, go to one more state, and then I'm going to pass it to David for some more questions. But I want to come home here to Georgia because we're seeing something here that we have not seen for a very long time in polling. We are actually seeing a split ticket dynamic playing out uh, with the Republicans ahead, of course, in the governor's race and the Democrats ahead in the U.S. Senate race. What, what's going on here, Evan? Why is that happening? Uh, Brian Kemp is a reasonable conservative who, even if you don't necessarily like his conservative politics, you have mm-hmm. some faith that he can do the job fairly accurately and fairly competently. Mm-hmm. And Herschel Walker has undiagnosed CTE and literally can't get a sentence out without saying something ludicrous and insane. See mm-hmm. the comments about the good air going to China and the bad air coming oh. to us or whatever, right? <laughs> Or the comments after Roe, or all of it, right? Like, Herschel can't... Herschel is literally anathema to the voters, the Democrats. The Democrats are winning now, and the reason why Democrats won in 2020, which is suburban, well-educated social liberals who make a lot of money in North Fulton, North DeKalb, and then up through Cobb and Gwinnett to uh, Forsyth. And the, and the excerpts, right? Mm-hmm. Those voters like competent, sensible people. John Ossoff mm-hmm. and Raphael Warnock come off as sensible, reasonable people, which is why they want a lot of those votes. Joe Biden does the same. Mm-hmm. Herschel Walker is a horrible candidate for them. And the other problem mm-hmm. is 
when you're running against Raphael Warnock, you're not going to get uh, Republicans getting 17% of the black vote, which is the other way that Herschel would, in theory, be a good candidate, would be chipping away at older culturally conservative black voters. But it's, 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 it's Reverend Warnock, so that's not going to happen. And mm-hmm. Kemp is, Kemp is going to win those white suburbanites. He's going to hold all of his margins in the rest of the state. And he's probably going to, he's probably going to win. And the thing mm-hmm. is that Herschel is going to get destroyed. Like we are going to, we are going to find out just how, like we're going to, we're going to find out just how quickly Forsyth and is going to, is going to trend left because, oh boy, Herschel is a horrible candidate for the, for the North Atlanta suburbs and exurbs. Uh-huh. So, so you figure Walker is really going to take a pasting in the donut counties around Atlanta then? Biden won, Biden lost Forsyth by, I think, 33 points. If uh-huh. Herschel, if Herschel wins it by 25 or more, I'll be surprised. Wow. That, that is stunning, especially when you're talking about Forsyth County. That, that is absolutely stunning. Well, I appreciate it, Evan, and I'm going to send it over to David now for some more questions. David? Yes, and Evan, I do have some more questions, but I want to tell you, I was sending Catherine and Tim cross paths on so many of these polls that came out um, in the last um, you know, few days of the week of the John Bolton poll, the Fox polls. There was a Survey USA poll of the Georgia Senate race, and I just will tell you some things that stuck out. One, Herschel Walker does much worse among 65 and over voters than he does, say, 50 to 65 voters. And these are voters that would have remembered his Georgia football career because I know people say like 18 to 29, you know, they never saw him play football, even up to 40. They didn't really get the experience to play football, not that that should matter any, but these voters that are so that are older, they know he's not competent. Also, he's been very poor with um, uh, compared with uh, white women. Um, and then talking about Pennsylvania, those cross tabs from that Senate race are just very intriguing. Um, on racial groups, Oz and Fetterman were in the poll. I believe it was the Bolton poll were tied. Um, Oz was actually winning Latino voters. Um, they and I think. Um, Oz was winning Native American voters 100 to zero. Now, obviously, it's probably a very small sample size. With African American voters, it was about where you expect a Democrat to be. So you're thinking, well, all that, you're telling me, how in the world is Dr. Oz winning? I mean, I'm sorry, uh, John Fetterman winning. John Fetterman is actually winning white voters in Pennsylvania. Um, And so it's this really interesting mix, and I think it – it shows how bad Dr. Oz is. Also, white, college-educated women, Dr. Oz is in the teens. Um, just, oh, I've never seen anything like it. I don't know if you've seen so, the cross-tabs that I have, but if you saw them oh, before, oh, I Jim, share them with us. I, I've looked at all of them, so we'll, we'll, start, we'll start up in Pennsylvania. The thing about the Pennsylvania polls is I don't believe it's quite that bad. But the thing is, the polls are so bad that even if you do like fairly sizable, like historical bias, like corrections, 
Oz is still down, and he's still in terrible shape, and he still has over 50% unfavorables, and Fetterman is still in very good shape with white voters. So the thing the thing about, like, oh, don't believe the polls. Yeah, I, I agree with that to an extent. Like, be cautious with, with trusting these polls. But, like, Fetterman or Oz was in the teens with white college women. Even if that's 22%, that's not good. That's not, that's not a winning number, right? Even if you make the adjustments. Oz is so far down that he's DOA. Like he's uh, he's, he's he's dead at the election was today. He has, only has some life because it's months from now. But like everyone hates him in Georgia. The thing about the thing about the the, the old voters not not being particularly personal friendly or not more personal friendly than you would expect is. The the whole Herschel candidacy never made any sense to me because it was this, like, weird white person response to what they thought black voters would want. Like, it's a very, like, oh, just run the black football player in Georgia. He'll get a bunch of old black people to vote for him. Like, that is the extent of the Herschel Walker logic, to the extent that the logic for his candidacy ever existed. And... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, older black Democratic voters are, are a lot savvier than the white Republicans who made the decision to run Herschel uh, realized. And they mm-hmm. they see right through him. They see right through the fact that he's a well, like, he, he's a stuttering fool who is completely unqualified to, you know, do basic things, let alone be a U.S. senator. Yeah, and obviously the fact that Raphael Warnock is a black minister, um, you, you know, that there, there's no contrast there even for black voters as far as, you know, racial dynamics. So then it becomes competence, and then that goes back to Herschel's problem. Well, let me uh, talk to you about another thing. I mean, I've seen these polls, and they all make sense, whether they be Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, even Wisconsin, some places Democrats lead sometimes. Uh, you know, Democrats are losing, whatever it may be. But I, um, Ohio, we have seen cycle after cycle, Democrats are on the decline in the state. Yet we've had multiple polls now that show Tim Ryan is beating um, J.D. Vance. Now, there's a good bit of undecided there, and, and I don't think I'd bet the mortgage payment on Tim Ryan winning Senate at this point, but he is definitely exceeding expectations. Tell us why that's the case. So, God almighty, I just, Republicans are running such horrible candidates for the Senate. I didn't even think about J.D. Vance, but he's, the problem with J.D. Vance is that he's also like a liberal elite huckster who's trying to sell himself as an everyman. And Ohio seems to be saying no to that. The... The case for Ryan being genuinely competitive is like J.D. Vance is like a liberal elitist who went to an Ivy League school who wrote a book supposedly for rural America that was actually that was actually catnip for coastal elites. Um, Ryan's a good candidate. He's always done really well in the working class actor, and he's always had good relationships with white working class voters. And Republicans in Ohio do have a fairly substantial turnout problem in non-presidential elections. Like they, mm. 
the all the counties south of the I-71, which is a fairly useful dividing line in terms of understanding Ohio politics, it's a highway that goes from Cleveland all the way down to Cincinnati. Um, all the counties south of the I-71, they're all super right trending. They're all places that you know Obama was competitive in in 2008 and 2012. They're all now super red counties. The problem for Republicans, though, is that it doesn't matter if they win them by a lot. It matters if they turn out their voters in them. And again, J.D. Vance is not a great candidate for that fact, for pulling that off. Mm. With Ed Trump on the ballot and with Mike DeWine at the top of the ticket, who, um, whatever you think of DeWine, not exactly uh, a big a big friend of mega hardcore Trumpists. Um, Vance will probably be fine just because uh, Trump, will, Trump has endorsed him. Trump has... You know, Trump will put his, his, his shoulder to the wheel. Uh, he has Peter Thiel's backing, and Thiel is presumably going to write a, you know, $50 million check to shore up the fact that Vance has no money. And the other thing is the average polling error in Ohio the last four cycles, 7%. Republicans have underestimated polls by an average of 7% in the last four election cycles. It's it's one of those things where I will I have gotten burned by Ohio before. I will not get burned by Ohio again. If Tim Ryan wants to go and actually do the thing and win, bully for him. I'll be the happiest person to be wrong. But I Ohio polls, man, they're just so bad and they're always wrong in the exact same direction. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I want to keep seeing you know data points and obviously when those undecideds get pushed. Where do they go? And then, of course, turnout's huge. Well, let's kind of move away from America now, and let's go across the pond to the United Kingdom. Now, in um, October, we've been told, news reports, that Boris Johnson is stepping down. But we understand this is not triggering a full election. International political expert Evan Scrimshaw, tell us what will happen in October. Uh, it's September now. I think the date has changed. Uh, the change. Conservative Party, the Conservative Party of the UK, are having basically a primary to decide who their next leader will be. That leader will be Liz Truss, the current Foreign Secretary. She is in a head-to-head battle with former Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, Sunak. Truss is going to win. She's going to win quite handily because, despite the fact that she was a uh, moderate conservative who voted to stay in the European Union in 2016. She is now the candidate of the hard Tory right, which I, I don't even know why that happened, but like it did. Uh, trust, trust will win. She'll have control of the parliamentary party. The problem for the conservatives is that they're having an inflation crisis that's arguably worse than um, the U.S.'s. And a new conservative leader is going to have to um, get there. Is going to try and have is going to have to try and figure something out quickly. There will be a chance that this new leader will get a bump in the polls and want to go to an early election. Um, I know candidates have ruled it out. That doesn't mean anything. If if Liz Truss has a seven point lead, you know, by the day of the U.S. vote, she might absolutely go to an election, but. The UK is going to is about to have their third female prime minister. 
Well, Evan, um, thanks for that information on the United Kingdom. Um, I, I want to tell you, the last time you were on, we you talked about Dwayne Johnson. I actually saw he and Kevin Hart did some little social media video where they talked about Dwayne Johnson running for president. Dwayne Johnson demurred, even though in that he said, e- even though I have presidential qualities, I don't want to run for, you know, something like that. So it was very much one of those um, – leaving the door open, so I thought that was interesting based on our final, our last conversation. Will you open talking about the book? Let's close. Um, Evan, tell us where people can um, buy your book. So it's on Amazon. Um, there, uh, it's available both as an ebook and as a physical uh, paperback. Uh, it's called Salvation in the Storm. Uh, you can just Google either Salvation in the Storm or Evan Scrimshaw in the Amazon store of your of your country, and you can find it. Um, it's, I mean, I, I think it's good. I don't know. I'm obviously biased, but um, I think it's pretty decent. Well, uh, you're always more than decent on our show, so that that's a, a good start. You're, you're an engaging, interesting person to talk to. Um, and, and then, of course, so we've got the book. If people want to read uh, your writings or follow you on social media, I know you write multiple places and you've got social media. Tell folks where they can um, follow you and read you there. Follow me on Twitter at East Grimshaw. Uh I have a podcast I update, I don't know, sometimes on YouTube. Um, I can that links to that. Uh, I have a Substack, com. Uh, it's free to sign up. Uh, you can get them delivered to your inbox, or you can just follow me on Twitter. Uh, I write most days. It'll be more U.S. now that we're getting closer to the midterms. Uh, and then a weekly political betting column over at thelines.com. And uh, I'll be doing a bunch of NFL stuff over for the guys over at the lines. So if you're interested in... The upcoming football season, I have a column up from last week on the uh, on all the teams of second-year quarterbacks and whether or not uh, they'll be able to make a jump or not. So if there's any sports fans in the in the uh, in the audience, yes, well, also look for that work. All right. Well, I'll have to find out more about your NFL stuff offline um, since you know we're on a political-focused show tonight. Um, but, Evan, thanks again for coming on the show. We hope that people continue to purchase your book and read it. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, thanks for your promo on the book. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Yes. All right, that was Evan Scrimshaw, frequent and uh, one of our favorite guests on the show. Um, let's go ahead and, and try to get back to those last little things we were talking about. We were talking about the bill that the Republicans had switched on. And, Tim, I think you had a few more thoughts. So try to pick up where you left off if you can remember. Yeah, well, Pat Toomey, you know, who I said had led the opposition to this, claimed that there was $400 billion in pork. And I've already explained what 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 they were saying. But John Stewart, uh, you know, I, I told you he went nutty about this. And, and he said something, you know, that, that they cannot get around. I mean, he's going right after Ted Cruz, especially for that fist-bumping nonsense of his on the, on the floor of the Senate after the vote. And the thing is, no matter what the Republicans say, 
It's the same exact bill, pretty much, that they voted on in June, and 25 of them simply switched their votes. And 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 I'd like to know if that, you know, it, like Stewart said, all of them put stuff about veterans on their social media and their websites and they... And then when it comes time to support veterans, uh, well, we we have a different story now. And it just makes it look like, guys, that they just want to, I don't know, in their minds, let's deny the administration and the Democrats another legislative uh, victory uh, before the election. But that's a poor way to express it, it, it. If, if you know what I mean, so it, 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 it's it's a sad that this that was the saddest thing that happened in Washington this week by far to me. Me too. Yes, I'll tell you this. I, I don't think it's that Republicans support or don't support veterans. What they like is they like causes in the macro when when things are pageantry and and a broad concept. And there's no problems, including people doing military service. They love it. When they have problems, and those problems need addressing, and those problems need addressing through tax spending and, um, you know, taxes and spending, they, it just throws them for a loop, and then they stop supporting things. And unfortunately, the human experience is sticky, and, and things get messy, and things need spending, and things have problems, and that's just life. And people like Ted Cruz and Pat Toomey just need to understand that. Um, Catherine, one more thought on this. I noticed that um, John Stewart, when he was doing a lot of media hits on this, I saw he went on Newsmax. I saw he went on Fox News. I think it was daytime because I saw Bill Hemmer, who used to be on CNN. I recognized him um, from years ago. But um, I, I don't think he's in their nighttime lineup. Um, what do you think of the strategy on this bill, since it is so important to get you know Republican supporting people to understand the problem here, that um, John Stewart goes on these right-leaning networks? I think for um, John Stewart, this is a nonpartisan issue for him. I think it's really important to him, and I think he'll go anywhere where he can try to get some leverage. Uh, and I think it's a good idea. I think, you know, even though he has always been thought of as a, you know, left-wing, you know, you know, what left-wing commentator and comedian, um, I think people still respect him, and so I think that that's. I don't think it's a a partisan issue for him. I think this is like a very con- deep concern for him and so I admire him for it must be very frustrating for him to go on Fox News but I admire him for setting aside his I'm sure discomfort in order to advocate for these for the veterans and for this bill. Yeah, I mean he really he just has such a force of personality. He dominated those interviews with information, and really, I mean, Bill Hammer in particular had no idea what to say. I don't even know who the person was interviewing him on Newsmax. Um, and so 
if Democrats on certain situations are Democratic-leaning people, Pete Buttigieg is, Buttigieg is really good about knowing how to do this. If they could get on certain Fox platforms and like platforms and get in there and really get to tell facts, um, I think it might start to pierce the filter. And I think, it, you know, as biased as some of those news sources are, some of those, you know, they push conspiracy theories, at some point, if you have so many Americans, they only get their news from those sources, if all we do is preach to the choir, we're never going to convert anybody on anything. And so if we could find targeted things like John Stewart has, um, I think in this issue it's, it's a good use of that. Um, so I thought that was very interesting that could be studied for other um, applications. And like I said, Pete Buttigieg, from about four years now, has really done this well, too. Um, well, guys, this is about time to wrap this thing up, and I want to go ahead and preview next week's show. Um, our guest coming on the show for at least the third time, um, you know, academic. I don't think she actually works um, out of school this semester because her pack, strike pack has taken off so much. But Rachel Bittekoffer is going to be our guest next week on the show, so we're looking forward to that. Okay, um, great. Yes. Until next week, been the Cozy Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. Good night, buddy. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.